Eric, that you would choose to be with us today because you could be other places and doing other things, but you chose to be here, and we thank you for that. We hope that what you hear today will encourage you and inspire you, but we also hope that you are challenged by what you hear today as well. We want you to feel good when you leave, but we also want you to grow a little bit too. So podcasters, uh, if you're out there, welcome to you as well. We appreciate you listening in wherever you are and whatever you're doing. We pray that you would be blessed. Um, a week ago, this past Friday, Julia and I were in the town of Visalia, California. Visalia is in the San Joaquin Valley, which is an agricultural area about 190 miles north of Los Angeles and about 35 miles south of the Sequoia Forest, for those of you that know your geography. Some of you are looking at me like, eh, where's California? Okay. Uh, we, we were planning to go see the giant Sequoia trees on the next morning, so this would have been last Saturday. And so we stayed in Visalia that night. It was hot, y'all, 106 degrees at 4.35 o'clock in the evening. Now, out there, they'll tell you, oh, but it's a dry heat. It doesn't matter because 106 degrees is like a blast furnace every time you open your car door or walk outside. So that dry, hot thing is <laughs> a lie. It's a lie. It was hot. And so as Julia and I had done, we were basically eating our way across California because everywhere we went, we were looking for the, you know, the best hamburger or the, the best restaurant. And, and so we had found a place to eat there in Visalia, and, and we went for a, a, a walk after our meal because we needed it. And it was a balmy 93 degrees uh, right at dusk. In the previous few days, um, I had been in Long Beach for a work conference and had seen more homeless people over the past, over the previous three days than I had seen in my entire life combined. Uh, I actually looked at an article yesterday that said that right now in Los Angeles, and this was current as of June of this year, there are approximately 59,000 homeless people living in Los Angeles, and a large percentage of those, well over 80%, uh, live in on the street. And uh, we had seen evidence of their makeshift shelters, tarps basically stretched between fences on our way north out of Los Angeles. But in my own naivety, I had thought that once we got out of the greater Los Angeles metropolitan area that the homelessness would disappear. But there, in the still very hot but clean streets of Visalia, California, was another homeless man sitting on a bench with all of his, with I'm assuming, all of his earthly belongings piled up around his feet. He had his shirt off, and I understand that because it was incredibly hot even that late in the evening, but he wasn't bothering anybody. He wasn't asking for money. Um, he was just sitting there uh, on the bench with, with one leg crossed over the other, and if it hadn't been for all of the stuff piled up around his feet, then you would have thought he was just a regular guy who was taking in the evening and then at some point would get up and walk home. As Julie and I walked by him, a, a car passed on the street, 
it was uh it was black uh, like a customized import of some type like an acura one of those small acura sedans it was black car black windows nice chrome wheels lowered to the ground and it was it was a nice looking car and the windows were open and there was music coming from coming from the car you've seen similar things i'm sure just some kids out enjoying a friday night during the summer in the downtown part of Vesalia, California. Except a kid in the front passenger seat leaned out of the window and shouted at the shirtless homeless man sitting on the bench. And with a laugh, he yelled out, Hey, man, why don't you put on a shirt? And I doubt the kid heard the man's reply over the music and them driving away, but I heard what he said. In a quiet very resigned voice the homeless man sitting on the bench said maybe next week that was it nothing else he didn't curse he didn't yell just maybe next week and i'm not being melodramatic i'm not trying to add to and and make it something that it wasn't guys i i heard a lifetime of hopelessness in that one statement, maybe next week. And the car drove off, and the homeless man sat there. And Julia and I, we, we walked on by, because y- y'all know how you are whenever there's homeless people close by, right? Mm-hmm. You know how, you know what we do. We avoid eye contact. We don't want to get involved in anything. We, we walk by. And so Julia and I walked on by, but in my heart, I thought, man, what a punk. What, what, a, what a jerk. I mean, what's your problem? I mean, how heartless can you be? Why pile on the ridicule to somebody who's obviously already down? I mean, what, what's wrong with you, man? How could you be so heartless? How could you be so cruel? I mean, it's not like this guy wants to be homeless sitting on a bench, shirtless, with all of his stuff piled up around him. What's, what's wrong with you? And I had a moment where I seriously considered turning around and taking off my shirt and giving it to the man. But I didn't. First of all, because I didn't want to get arrested or disowned by my wife, because that's what happens whenever you're Pillsbury Doughboy White and you take off your shirt in public. But it was one of those moments, and and I know that everyone here is going to identify with what I'm about to say. It was one of those moments that whenever you look back on it, you wish you had done something. Wasn't sure what to do in the moment, but just wish I would have done just something. If not give him my shirt, then give him five bucks or just, just have done something, anything to show him some mercy. And that 15-second episode, y'all, we saw a lot of stuff whenever we were in California, but that 15-second episode has absolutely stuck with me. And I can't get it out of my mind. And as it so often happens, I had read a devotional from Rick Warren a few days before that was already rolling around in my heart and spirit about the seven facets of mercy. And I want to share some of that with you today with this story as a, as a backdrop. 
And look, there's some, there's some really good material here, and I'm, I'm not saying that because I'm teaching it. I'm saying because Rick Warren really puts out good material, so I want to give him credit for that. Some of this is mine. A lot of it is his. But I encourage you to take notes because Jesus likes it when you take notes. And you just never know. You might actually write something down today that will change your life. So I encourage you to take some notes. I want to dive in with a key question this morning that seems almost rhetorical, but I I want us to take a little bit of time and and really think about this. So here's the key question. Why is mercy such a big deal? I'm going to wait on a response or two. What do you guys think? What do do y'all think? Why, Why is mercy such a big deal? It's the only way we can be saved. Thank you, Sister Dean. We don't deserve it. Thank you, Big Wheel. We all need it. Don't deserve it, but we all need it. Thank you, Kelton. Anybody else? Why is mercy such a big deal? Comes from your heart. Thank you, Brother Milton. Anybody else? Thank you so much, y'all, for your responses today. And those are some great responses and very true responses. I want to submit one more for your consideration today, one that maybe you haven't thought of before. One of the reasons that mercy is such a big deal is because mercy is God's number one characteristic. Mercy's a big deal because mercy is God's number one characteristic. In in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7, and I'm going to do something that I normally don't do, and I'm going to break a lot of next conventions today. I'm going to read a good bit from the King James today. Now, you will also see some New Living Translation today, and maybe even an excerpt from the Living Bible. But this one right here, folks, is in the King James. Look at what it says. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord... The Lord God, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Verse 7, keeping, what? Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. I will visit the iniquity of fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. Now look, context matters. Anytime you read Scripture, I encourage you to look at the context. Context matters. This is that episode in Scripture where Moses had asked God, show me your glory. And God passed by Moses, and Moses saw God from the back. And in in this chapter verse 34 in the previous verses verses 1 through 5 God had just told Moses okay now that I've shown you my glory Moses and you've seen me from the back now I want you to take some and hew some tablets of stone to replace the ones that you broke in anger and I want you to write down my law again context matters so let's put this in context God is giving out his commandments, yet when he proclaims himself to Moses, he calls his own name. I am the Lord. I am the Lord God. I am Yahweh. 
And then what comes next? Not judgment. Not power. Not wisdom. Not even holiness. God's number one characteristic in the Bible isn't his sovereignty, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his anger. Somebody needs to hear that today. God's not angry with you. It's not his justice. The first thing God lists is his mercy. I am the Lord, the Lord God. And the first thing I want you to know about me is my mercy. You know, our our secular culture today wants to portray God as if he even exists. They want to portray him as someone who is completely focused on judgment, on punishment, on the, the very detached doling out of consequences because you didn't abide by this arbitrary set of rules. That's the portrayal of God that our secular society wants to present to us. But God describes himself. This isn't man's description of God. This is God describing himself, first and foremost, as a God of mercy. God is revealing his glory to Moses. And he calls himself merciful before he calls himself anything else. Now, stay stay with me right here. If God's first characteristic is his mercy, and we, as his children, are to imitate and be like him in every way, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, let me give it to you in the authoritative King James. Be ye therefore followers of God, followers of God, followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Look at what it says in the New Living Translation. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do as followers of God, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. So, now let let me back up. Let me start over. Since God's primary characteristic, as he describes himself, is mercy, and we, as his children, are to imitate him in every way, then folks... Who's tracking me? Who's tracking me? Go ahead and raise your hand if you're tracking me. Some of you aren't raising your hand. So you either don't care or you're not tracking me. If God's primary characteristic is his mercy, and we are to imitate him in everything that we do, in every way, then folks, our primary characteristic should be, thank you, our primary characteristic should be mercy. Not judgment. Not knowledge. I hope you got your shoes off because it's going to make me stepping on your toes a lot easier today. Not anger. 
Our primary characteristic should not be, well, let's wait and see if they manifest the fruits of repentance. Make sure they're really sincere. Not, as soon as they apologize, I'll be happy to extend them mercy and forgive them. As long as they act right from now on, yeah, I can give them mercy. But instead, isn't this good? But instead, our primary characteristic, the thing, Michelle, that we should be most known for, the first thing that people think about, Rex, whenever they hear our names, what should come to mind first should be mercy. Ben Tier, man, that is one merciful man. Dean Dykes, I don't know of a lady more merciful than she is. Earl Wheeler, most, most merciful person I know. So how do we do that? Because I'm not there. My wife said amen. I'm not there. So how do we do that? What does mercy look like IRL? As they say in, on Snapchat and other places where the young people hang out. IRL, y'all heard that before? They, okay, let me give you a little, little quiz here or, or a little instruction. If somebody on the Internet says, want to meet IRL, question mark, do not reply yes. Because what that random person on the Internet means is, do you want to meet in real life, IRL? Don't meet, don't meet strangers on the Internet, IRL. Internet's fine. You just stay on your side of the keyboard and I'll stay on mine. Want to meet IRL, IRL in real life. In real life, what does it look like to be merciful first and foremost? If, folks, if you will practice what I'm about to tell you, it will transform your relationships. Jason Cooper, if you will practice what you're about to tell them, it will transform your relationships. Let's talk about mercy, IRL, in real life. Number one, and for those of you taking notes, I'm going to give you seven. But number one, mercy in real life means being patient with people's quirks. Mercy in real life means being patient with people's quirks. How do you become more patient with your kids, your spouse, your co-workers, your friends? The Bible says in James chapter 3, verse 17, in the New Living Translation, it says, The wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy. The wiser you become, the more patient and merciful you become. Jesus was an extremely patient man. He was extremely patient. And he was extremely patient with the many personality quirks of the 12 men that he had called to be his disciples. Simon the Zealot, was called Simon the Zealot for a reason. Now, some scholars believe that Simon was the member of this fierce and fanatical 
political sect that actually carried out, some of the members carried out assassinations against Romans. Some people believe that's why he was called Simon the Zealot. Other scholars think that he was called Simon the Zealot because he was a very zealous Jew. He was very zealous, very rigid, very legalistic in his Jewish religion. But whatever the case, how many of you have ever spent some time in the company of a person who is fiercely liberal or fiercely conservative in their political views? Gets tiring after a while, doesn't it? If you are that person, we're all here to tell you it gets tiring after a while. It, it, it's off-putting. But Jesus was very patient. He was very merciful with Simon the Zealot. Peter, the apostle Peter, Peter was brash. He was impulsive. He was a loudmouth. Jesus let him stay on the team. You know why? Because Jesus was merciful. And he put up with Peter's personality quirks. James and John, the mo you know, the, the beloved disciple, they were also called the sons of thunder. And we don't really know why, but there's a good clue in Luke chapter 9 because some people there in this town didn't accept Jesus. And so James and John said, Jesus, you want us to call down fire from heaven and smoke them right now? Jesus said, please don't do that. Jesus put up with their personality quirks. Thomas had faith issues. Don't even get me started with Judas Iscariot. But they were all on the team. You know why? Because Jesus was merciful, and he showed his mercy by being patient with their personality quirks. The point is, these were 12 men who followed Jesus around for three years, and they all had some annoying personality quirks. They had hang-ups. They had issues. They had inconsistencies. They constantly did things that were aggravating, a little bit annoying, and possibly even damaging to Jesus' reputation. But he was patient with their quirks because he was merciful. Mercy, IRL, means being patient with people's quirks. Number two, mercy in real life means helping anyone around you who is hurting. That looks good, Derek. Thank you. For those of you that don't know, Derek Odom takes care of our media for us very frequently and does a good job. Thank you. Mercy in real life means helping anyone around you who is hurting. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself without being merciful. Proverbs 3 and 27 says, Withhold not good from them to whom it is due when it is in the power of thine hand to do it. If you can do good for somebody, then do it. That's the Jason Cooper translation. It's the JCT. Y'all heard of that one before? But listen, God's not simply watching what we do. He's watching how we do it. In other words, he's watching our attitude as we do it. Because Romans 12 and 8 says, when you show mercy, do it cheerfully or with cheerfulness. I'm going to do something nice for you, but I'm not going to like it very much. And I can't wait until it's done because i got other stuff to do. I don't think that's the right attitude. And it might be a shirtless, homeless man sitting on the bench in Basalia, California, but it doesn't have to be. 
It might be your neighbor who just lost a loved one. It might be your co-worker who just had to put down the family pet. It might be your brother or sister at church who's just had to go through a surgery. Folks, there is no shortage of hurting people around us. Mercy in real life means looking, stopping long enough and looking for the hurt and then helping however you can. That's mercy in real life. Number three, mercy in real life means giving people a second chance. Hey, I'm just going to go ahead and warn you, these are going to get more difficult as we go. So I put the easy ones first. Don't go anywhere. Mercy in real life means, means giving people a second chance. When somebody hurts us, we normally either want to get even, or if we've got a little bit more Jesus in us that day, we won't get even, but we'll write them off. Fool me once. Come on, help me out. Fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me, right? And it sounds wise. I mean, it really does. It sounds wise. It sounds good. It's just a teeny problem with that approach to people. It's not biblical. Ephesians 4, 31 through 32 in the King James says this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evils. Come on, Jesus. I mean, what am I going to have left? Be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Listen, I got, I got a newsflash for you folks here today. But if you are in a relationship, any kind of relationship with a human being, they are probably going to hurt you at some point. Spouse, parent, brother, sister, friend, boss, co-worker, pastor, Sunday school teacher, Chances are pretty high those people that you're in relationship with are not going to meet all of your expectations at some point in the relationship. And that's where hurt comes from, unmet expectations. It happens in human relationships. And when it does, when it happens, mercy in real life means giving them a second chance. Number four, mercy in real life means doing good to those who hurt you. Mm. Not just ignoring them, not just going to separate ways. Y'all, it means doing good to the person who hurt you. Brother Wheeler, mercy is giving people what they need 
Brother Kelton, not what they deserve. You don't deserve it. You need it. I'm going to give it to you. Why should we do that? Why would, why would we even want to do that? Why should I do something good for you when you've done something hurtful to me? You ready? Because that's what God does for us. Not did for us, does for us. Luke chapter 6, verses 35 through 36 in the New Living says this, Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great, and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High, for He is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate. In the King James, it says merciful. You must be compassionate. You must be merciful just as your Father is compassionate. Aren't you glad that your heavenly Father has been merciful to you? Aren't you glad that He has shown you mercy, IRL? Aren't you glad that He has done good good for you in spite of all of the times that you have been hurtful to him, used him, ignored him, forgotten him. But he, has, he hasn't kept score. Do you realize that the Most High God has not kept score? He hasn't returned hurt for hurt. He hasn't returned wound for wound. He hasn't returned sin for judgment. Come on. Raise your hand if you think you have reaped every seed of wickedness and sin that you, you have sown in your life. I want you to raise your hand. We know better. We know that Jesus comes along and sprinkles Roundup, weed killer on it. Kill it. It's not coming up. I'm not going to let it come up. I'm not going to let that seed come up. We have not reaped every hurt for the hurt that we've caused him. He hasn't returned hurt for hurt, but he has done good for us. Mercy in real life means doing exactly what God has done for you for others. By giving good things in return for hurtful things. We're getting into it now. We've only got three left. Mercy in real life means being kind to those who offended you. Mercy means that you are more interested in winning people to Christ than you are in winning the argument. Jude chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, in the King James it says this, And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now that's pretty good, but let me give it to you in another translation so you can see what Jude is really getting at here. In the Living Bible he says it this way, Save some by snatching them as from the very flames of hell itself, and as for others... Help them to find the Lord by being kind to them. 
But be careful that you yourselves aren't pulled along into their sins. Hate every trace of their sin while being merciful to them as sinners. Is this not the very approach that God takes with us? Hating the sin, but being merciful to us? Now, folks, not everything in life is a heaven or hell issue. So is it really worth the argument? Or can mercy speak a better word than all of your logic and all of your knowledge and all of your arguments? Some things are very much a heaven or hell issue. And Jude tells us that in those instances, kindness goes a really long way. And I, I know, I know, I know, I get it. We have to be on guard against sin in our own lives. But I want to tell you something. Jesus never looked at one person and said, you're too sinful for me to talk to. You're too sinful for me to engage with. You might contaminate me. Get away. I can't fellowship with you. You're too sinful. Jesus never did it. As a matter of fact, I know a lot of places in Scripture where Jesus went to where the sinners were. And he ate their food, and he drank their water, he drank their wine, doing everything that he could to make a connection with them that would draw them in to relationship. Mercy in real life, IRL, means being kind to those who see things differently from you. Number six. Y'all doing all right? Some of you look a little punch drunk out there. Mercy in real life means building bridges of love to the unpopular. It's called premeditated mercy because you intentionally build friendships with people who don't have friends or who are not accepted at work or in society, in your circles. In Matthew chapter 9, it's really interesting. The Pharisees, they don't agree with something that Jesus is doing, but they don't question him. They, they question the disciples. Why is Jesus doing that? Why is he eating with those people? He's eating with tax collectors. He's eating with unclean people. Why is he doing that? You're following him. You're supposed to be good Jews. Why are you doing that? In Matthew chapter 9, it says, But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole don't need a doctor, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. And I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Look at how, look at how the New Living Translation puts it. When Jesus heard this, why are you doing that? Why is Jesus doing that? Why is he eating with those people? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want to show 
mercy. Not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Mercy in real life means I decide on purpose, in advance, that I am not going to distance myself from this person because he or she is fill-in-the-blank, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Communist. I'm not going to distance myself from this person because he or she is Baptist, Catholic, Unitarian, I'm not going to distance myself from this person because he or she is homosexual, transgender, alcoholic, drug addict. I'm not going to distance myself from this person because he or she is loosey-goosey, liberal, charismatic, Pentecostal. I'm not going to distance myself from this person because he or she is opinionated, arch-conservative, old-time apostolic. Just so we can go ahead and round it all out, I'm not going to distance myself from this person because he or she is a hard-to-pin-down, middle-of-the-road, moderate Pentecostal. I don't know what you are. I can't categorize you. You're not liberal. You're not concerned. I don't even know what you are. I'm not going to distance myself from this person because he or she is racist, sexist, elitist, because they're a rich snob, or because they come from that side of town or because they're this color or because they're this educated and not this educated. Are y'all getting this? It's premeditated. I decide in advance I am not going to let this distance be between us because he or she is whatever. The only people that Jesus distanced himself from were the religious, uh, the religious elite who thought they knew it all already. Every other outcast that approached Jesus in faith, he welcomed them. Let that sink in for a minute. Mercy, IRL, means being intentional about building a bridge to the unpopular. One more, and then we'll bring this home. Number seven, mercy in real life means value. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to get a phone call about this one. Mercy in real life means valuing relationships over rules. Help me with this one, Jesus. Romans 13 and 10 in the New Living Translation says, Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. If you want to show mercy, you put people before policies. If you want to show mercy, you put needs before procedures. You put relationships before regulations. You put love over law. I'll never forget something Brother Dan Davis said to me years ago. I'd been invited to be a part of a leadership team, and there was a guy on that team who was obviously struggling in some areas of his life. 
and I, I just felt a connection to him. Uh, can't really explain it other than that. Spent some time with him. I mean, real time. And uh, there's something about being in high-pressure situations that really forms bonds quickly. And, and he and I had some very honest conversations with each other. At one point, there were some folks, uh, and I'm being deliberately vague here, um, but there were some folks who had some issues, let's just say, with some of the decisions that we had made. And I wanted Brother Davis to hear about it from me before he heard it from anybody else because I really thought I was in trouble. And I, despite what some of you think about me, I really don't like being in trouble. Um, even though I tend to get in trouble a lot, I don't like it. And so whenever I thought I was in trouble, the first thing I did was like, I want Brother Davis to know about this. And so uh, I called him, talked to him. He, he was very quiet as I explained the uh, contextual complexities of the situation to him. And uh, he, he didn't say a lot. He knew the guy that I had referenced earlier, and he was familiar with his story, with his history, with some of his hang-ups. And when I was done, whenever I had explained it all, Brother Davis said, Jason, don't think anything else about it. Sometimes you get a little muddy when you try to pull somebody up out of the ditch. I know who you are. He didn't reprimand me for hurting his reputation as a pastor. He didn't scold me for, I'm using air quotes, podcasters, entertaining bad character. Instead, he recognized the mess that can happen sometimes in relationships and he considered it worthwhile. Brother Wheeler, that spoke volumes to me. Mercy in real life means you value relationships over rules. Now look, don't y'all get all twisty on me right now and go to extremes. Uh, have some common sense, okay? We need to have healthy boundaries with certain people. And we need to know where our convictions are. But I also know that sometimes lines get drawn way too hard, way too soon, out of fear. And I think mercy can show us a better way if we'll look for it. Let me bring this in. There is always going to be a tension between mercy and personal responsibility. You better believe there is, and you better believe it's always going to be there until the Lord takes us home. Some of you have experienced that tension today as we've gone through this lesson. Does he mean that person? And you kind of got to snore your lip a little bit whenever you say that. Does he mean that person? After what they did? After that, how they hurt me? After how they hurt all of those other people? Does he, does he really mean that person? I mean, did you see what she posted? Did you see who she was with? Did you see what she was wearing? Did you see what she had in her hand? Did you see, did you see who they were with? Does he mean, like, does he really mean that I need to, to change how I act toward that person? Now look, I know, I know, I told y'all, I'm working on it, 
it makes me uncomfortable too. But I've decided that if I'm going to err, if I'm going to do wrong, I'm going to err on the side of being too gracious, too merciful, and too forgiving because Jesus did all of those things for me perfectly on the cross. Matthew 5 and 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The fact of the matter is, y'all, I want mercy. I need mercy. So therefore, I need to be merciful. We reap what we sow, yes? So if I want mercy, that means I need to sow seeds of mercy. And I'm going to tell you all right now, I need a lot of mercy. So I need one of those industrial-sized agriculture uh, uh, planters, uh, seeders, just full of it, throwing out seeds of mercy. I need a lot. I really do. I need a lot. So how can we do that? And, and I'm going to get done in the next four minutes. How can we do that? How can we sow seeds of mercy and abundantly be patient with people's quirks? Who's that person in your life that has just irritating quirks? I mean, just grates on your last nerve. How can you practice patience with that person this week? This week, starting tomorrow, how can you practice patience with that person? Help anyone around you who's hurting. Who around you is obviously hurting that you can help this week? If you can't think of anybody, you're not looking hard enough. Look closer. How can we sow seeds of mercy? Give people a second chance, man. Give me a second chance. Who needs a second chance in your life? How can you show mercy and compassion this week to that person? Do good to those who hurt you. Maybe you're suffering today from an old wound that you have not been able to let go of. You need to forgive and let that thing go for good. And if you can't do it yourself, ask Jesus for some help. Who is that person in your life? I'm going to tell you what. Make the phone call this week. Send the text this week. Write a stinking email. Pay them a visit. Start the process. How can we sow seeds of mercy? Be kind to those who offend you. Who offends you? Is it a politician? Is it a comedian? Is it somebody on Facebook? I mean, you could just block them or get off of Facebook, but I mean, you could pray for them. Maybe there's a politician you need to pray for. Maybe there's a comedian you need to pray for. Maybe there's somebody on Facebook you need to pray for. How could you be intentional about showing kindness to that person this week? Build a bridge of love to the unpopular. That'll help you sow seeds of mercy. Who's the first person that comes to your mind when you think of outcast? Who spends their lunch breaks eating alone? Or who sits by herself at the soccer games? What specific thing will you do this week to build a bridge toward that person? Value relationships over rules. Who's an unbeliever that you could invite to lunch or to dinner? Will you step up and invite that person to church? Will you let them know, hey, I'm, I'm praying for you without any other commentary? Ladies and gentlemen, this is our ministry of mercy. This is mercy in real life. Let's pray.